It's good to see everybody here today. You survived election day. Way to go. And the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, is still on the throne. Go figure. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the past several weeks, we've been talking about how to be children of God who pledge our allegiance to that one king, the one king and and his one kingdom. While living in a world, the world demands our allegiance, right? From all sides, it demands our full allegiance. And so how do we live in that tension? How do we be good Christians while being good citizens of our nation? That can get complicated, can't it? Wrestling with that can get messy, especially when it comes to our relationships with people who don't share our allegiance to Jesus. They don't quite understand why, you know, we we have this allegiance to Jesus. But today I want to continue unpacking some really powerful ways that God uh, describes you, how he describes you, his children. And I want to ask how these pictures that he paints of us they help us to have a clearer picture of how we interact with the world around us. So this, we're going to be talking about identity and mission and that kind of thing today. Now, when I say the world, what does that make you think of? When I say the, the phrase the world, do you think of something bad? Do you think of something good? When I was growing up in my uh, youth group as a teenager, I'm a, you know, I was a Gen X, 80s, teenager, and I had several youth pastors growing up. I think we must have chased them all away one after the other, but, but when I was growing up, we would talk, our youth pastor would often talk about how we were called to be holy, you know, as teens. We were called to be holy, and we shouldn't have any part of the secular world, and so then what, often what would happen back then uh, was we would, usually at the culmination of a long week of, of revival or like a, at youth rallies or something like that, we would have this a, a youth night where we would come together, and the big thing was we would come together, and uh, often we would we would bring our music, any of our music that we had that came from non-Christian record labels. Um, we would bring because that was indicative of the world, and so we would all bring those. Uh, back then, it was cassette tapes. And, uh, you know, then slowly into CDs, but uh, mostly cassette tapes. And we would bring them and we would uh, throw them all into like a big trash can and sort of burn them. It was like a revolutionary statement. You know, we're, we're not of this world. And so we'd burn all of our, our, all our you know, rock music. And then the next week um, I would go out and buy those albums again because I missed them. Um, it was just like, I can't tell you how many times I bought the same Quiet Riot album. It was... <laughs> Kind of sad, but um, and so and, and back then there was like there was two styles of music that represented the world. Big, you know, that was the main. One was like heavy metal, and one was gangster rap. And so that's what would usually would get thrown into the trash can. And um, and so the day after I burned the CDs, what I would do is I'd go to the mall to the Christian book the Christian bookstore, the Christian music store, because that was such a thing uh, back then at the mall. Um, the, the Christian record store. And so, the, and what they did, the genius folks there had this. I don't know if some of you guys from my generation remember this, or if they, I don't know if they still do this, but uh, they would make, there would like be a little poster and they would have a sign that would make a list of all the non-Christian music you might listen to that you might enjoy. Um, and then they would have beside it uh, uh, the, the Christian alternatives that were sort of like that. So like, so if you like Michael Jackson or, you know, you like Bon Jovi or Metallica, you might like this. And, um, and for us, uh, 
metalheads, that's kind of what I was into, the Christian, inevitably, the Christian band that it would uh, say that you need uh, to buy that's just like, uh, you know, Quiet Riot is Striper. Anybody remember? Yes, we have some, we remember Striper, the black and yellow spandex outfits. They were glorious. They were just so cool. The hair uh, was just amazing. Um, I, I had a friend, uh, one of my old friends. We don't see each other very often, but we text each other like, you know, twice a year. You have those friends. And he just texted me uh, the picture of the new album by Striper. They're still coming out with stri- albums. I was like, props for longevity for those guys, man. Because um, I'm old, and they were a little older than me. So, uh. But in our day, being a, being a, a Gen X Christian teenager... Being in the world but not of the world, uh, seemed to, a, lot of, a lot of it seemed to revolve around the music we were listening to, and, and also making sure it didn't have like demonic messages if you played it backwards. Uh, that was a big thing uh, we were really worried about back then. Um, but today, what does it mean for us today to be Christians in the world today? What is the world? Uh, when you look at the absolutely mind-boggling shifts that have happened in our culture. Like some of the, the debates and things we were worried about in the 80s seem almost quaint, you know, by comparison. Uh, just some of the things that are so different in technology. I mean, the internet, we didn't have that. Um, the, you know, the philosophical norms now that were, are different. And things that have shifted, in, in, it seems like in such a short amount of time in a lot of ways, right? So when we look at these things, how does the Bible, which is these 2,000-year-old stories and letters written to each other. How do these letters from the early church have some surprisingly relevant things, powerful things to say to Christians in the 21st century who want to throw their allegiance to Jesus? Because here's the one thing that hasn't changed in 20 centuries, is if you're a Christ follower today, you have chosen to live under a different domain of authority, that dome of authority, that is kingdom, right? Uh, you, You live under a different dome than the one you were born under. You follow a different ruler. We don't submit to our old dome. We don't pledge allegiance to any other king but Christ, because he says you can't serve two masters. We've talked about that. And the New Testament talks like this, since we're under the dome which God is king, look at some of the the, the language it uses. For example, it says that we see ourselves as aliens and exiles, that we're to see ourselves as, as citizens and members of the household of God, that that's our tribe now. And if you've made Jesus your Lord, then your identity isn't anchored in the broader culture or in a social group or a a political persuasion. That's not what anchors our identity. It should be anchored in the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, right? We're part of the household of God. We're living in a land that is now, this land that we live in around us, the geographical area is now fundamentally, in some fundamental way, it's foreign to us. But Scripture also reveals something else, and that is that we're not just stuck sort of hiding out behind enemy lines, doing nothing, you know, wait until Jesus comes back. We're on a mission. So it's, it, there, there's something going on there. We're to be doing, we're Christ's ambassadors. We represent him to all the people who live around us. The people who live around us because they're image bearers of God too, even if they don't know it yet, right? And so we have, we're on a mission to them. Uh, and we're to show forth the character uh, and the ways of our king and the loving ways of his kingdom that we represent. And so, yes, we're here as aliens and exiles on one hand, but we're also 
missionaries and ambassadors in a foreign land. And this is really crucial for our self-identity. For, this is crucial for Christians to really keep straight or else we can get really mixed up. Because think about it, no ambassador today, and no ambassador to a foreign country would ever consider that foreign country their real home, right? That's not how ambassadors, that's not how they think. Uh, if an ambassador ever gets a little too attached to, to the, the nation or wherever they're stationed in, if they get a little too cozy, and that, I, I was reading about this, this, this happens, it, it's a phenomenon that happens, they're no good at their job anymore. They become compromised, right? And that's just not the way things are supposed to work when you're in the diplomatic services or the State Department, which that falls under. And so they become, their loyalties have been compromised, it would be said. And so that ambassador, uh, he, you know, an ambassador isn't supposed to uh, switch citizenship. That would be considered treason. And so if we're ambassadors of Christ, we're citizens of heaven, the Holy Spirit continually reminds us that this isn't our home, however comfortable a life we may build here. Something else no ambassador would ever do is get overly involved in the affairs of the foreign land that they live in, right? They're there kind of as an observer, as a communication, uh, in a communication aspect, but they don't get involved because what they're really preoccupied with, what an ambassador is preoccupied with, is the goals and affairs of their own nation, their own king, the one they represent, right? And so we have, to, we have to remind ourselves not to get overly obsessed and overly concerned with the affairs of this host country that we live in because we've got the affairs of Jesus Christ to be thinking of, amen? And, and the mission that we've been assigned. We've been assigned a very important mission. It's why Paul says that a good soldier doesn't become entangled in civilian affairs, but is always seeking to please his commanding officer. So our ultimate allegiance as Christians isn't to any politicians, not to any party. It's to our King, Jesus Christ. Amen? So, folks, while the rest of the country screams and hollers, and still screams and hollers, apparently, if you look at the news over who won what, because that's what they do. They, they fret and they strategize over who's the latest person to be elected to this office. Because even Jesus told us that's what the world does. The world obsesses over who's lording it over who. And what does he say? Not so with you. It'll not, it's not so with you. So while they're doing that, we don't have to do that. And so, so what, what did we see, you know, last Tuesday? Uh, many of us voted, and that's great. Vote if you, if you want to. We definitely can and should pray about our elected leaders. But see, we can do so in the peace of knowing that our one president, our king, our Lord and master is Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't matter who holds the Senate, who holds the Congress, who holds the White House. No, our king is Jesus Christ, and the nice thing about him is you don't have to worry about him. He's unchallenged, right? No one's going to knock him off the throne. Uh, he is king forever. He can't be voted out. He's got a plan to reconcile the world to himself, and we're a part of that plan. No one can thwart that plan. No devil can thwart that plan, and we don't have to condemn or curse anybody uh, because, folks, his reign is uncontested, right? The reign of Jesus is uncontested. It's already been established, and in fact, it says it will never end, so praise the Lord for that. But now, what does that mean for you and me? because we still live here. We're here. What does that mean for us in the meantime? I want to talk first about a couple of different schools of thought that are really fascinating to me. I hope this is interesting to you. There's some schools of thought uh, in, in the church, uh, who, folks who argue that 
as exiles and aliens, like the Bible says, what we ought to do is uh, withdraw from society, effectively sort of barricade ourselves behind our church doors. And the thought is here that the world has become so bad that it's unsafe. It's unsafe for you, it's unsafe for me, it's unsafe for our children. Um, And so what we need to do is kind of like head for the hills, stock up on canned goods and Sudoku puzzles and bullets or whatever it is, you know, you need to pass the time and, and wait for the bombs to fall and for Jesus to return. That's kind of what we do. Now, some people wouldn't put it quite that dramatically, but what this school of thought is effectively, it sees the church and the family effectively with a, with a bunker mentality. It's a bunker mentality that socially we should, we should really kind of build this, this beautiful wall and this wall should be an impenetrable wall. And, and our goal should be to sort of conserve our Christian way of life of, against, you know, the evildoers outside. And uh, it's kind of like we have this little zone of safety while, as the saying goes, the world goes to hell in a handbasket, right? You've heard that. Um, and this is called the, the philosophy of withdrawal. And we're just going to pull out of it. We'll hold hands, sing hymns, wait for the rapture. Um, and, and meanwhile, you know, who cares about, you know, injustice happening out in the world or, you know, what we're doing to the environment? Because it's all going to go up in a puff of smoke anyway when, after Judgment Day. Option number one. Other Christians see the world a little differently. Some Christians, there's a school of thought that says, well, this world is a fallen place. But they see society, you know, when you look at society, it looks to be arranged just sort of like this pyramid of power. You could just imagine a pyramid of power. And most of the people without the power are at the bottom, that's just most people. And then you have sort of like the middle managers in the middle. And then uh, at the top, you have the bosses. And this is just sort of the normative way that the world arranges itself. We're even told that in Scripture. People lord it over each other, you know, and it arranges itself. And so what this school of thought is say, well, listen, does God want everybody in the system to be a Christian? Yes or no? Sure, right, absolutely, right? So why don't we take advantage of the model, right? So take advantage of the model. We'll put a Christian in charge. We'll put a cross at the top of that pyramid. So now we've got a cross and a pyramid, right? And, and we'll force everybody underneath to sort of act like a Christian. Isn't that a grand idea? Um, and so uh, what, what it really seeks to do is, is not so much make disciples as convert our culture, it, well, let's convert the culture to something that sort of looks more like what we think things would just work, it would be better. It seems like a really good idea, and there's even really today very intricate, well-funded strategies for conquering all of the spheres of influence in our society by sort of infiltrating them uh, with Christians and taking charge and putting Christians in positions of leadership. Thereby, we basically sort of reform society in the image of Christendom. Uh, sort of, I think the idea is sort of force the world to accept Christian values, and, and hopefully in the process, sinners will be so pleased and thankful that we wrestled power away from them that maybe the law gets saved. Um, and the good thing is when Jesus finally does return, he won't really have that much to do, and we can just sort of uh, let him have his throne that we've been keeping warm for him. Um, and uh, so anyway, you can probably imagine my th- opinion about this. Um, this goes by a couple of different uh, titles over this kind of philosophy. This is the philosophy. You might hear kingdom now. Um, that's a philosophy or dominion theology. And here's the thing is, both of these things, these are not like just totally all bad. There's, there's, there's elements of these things that, that are understandable and I think are like even noble. And I understand, you know, on the one hand, 
we do need to protect our kids. Like, there, there is a big bad world out there, right? We want to build this hedge of protection around our homes, and we want to be wise with the, with the um, you know, the boundaries that we place in our lives. And on the other hand, too, who, what would be bad about having people uh, who are Christians in positions of influence, right? We should, we should have influence in our society. There, there's good things about it. The problem with both of these these philosophies and these schools of thought are at their core what they what they feed on what they're based on is either it's sort of the 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 twin vices of fear and need for power it's all about fear and power whichever one you you know you you go with so there's got to be a better way there's got to be something right there's got to be a third way i always like to bring out a third way right that's jesus he's always giving us a third way well, here's what's cool, is we actually have a fascinating picture right in the Bible that can really help us here. There were people in the Bible who were facing just kind of this sort of conundrum uh, in the Bible. And uh, so here's what it happens. About 600 years, six centuries before Jesus, the, before the birth of Jesus, uh, the nation of Israel had been conquered by the emperor Nebuchadnezzar. And they were taken into, Israel was conquered and taken into exile into Babylon. Babylon is literally and figuratively all through Scripture, it is this pagan land. It just stands for everything that is godless, that is hostile, it's enemy, it's an enemy land, it's very violent. And for the Jews, this, I mean, this really happened. This wasn't metaphorical for them. This really, they were taken into exile it's an absolutely devastating event. You could just imagine being a Jewish person living for a thousand years, you've lived in the promised land, and now you are being just stolen away. Like half of your countrymen are just dead because they've just been killed. And now you, the ones who are left are being stolen away. It's the destruction of the temple, the complete end to a thousand years of Jewish way of life as far as they could fathom the end of what it meant to be the children of God in the land he gave them. And those who survived this long uh, journey, uh, the deportation into Babylon, they were faced with some tough choices. And I want to set up the picture of, of what was happening here and the schools of thought that were going on with them. Many of the Jews were uh, had just lost hope completely. We could imagine. Just, they, just, they felt so hopeless. Nothing mattered anymore to them. Uh, some of them would say, we should just, we should just die. It'd be better, it would have been better for us to just die back in, in Jerusalem, right? It would be more merciful. Some of them, uh, there's, there's uh, writings where it said some of them felt it would be more merciful to just kill their own families rather because the world had ended. What was the point of going on? Some Jews wondered if maybe it would be a better thing at that point. I mean, everything is, everything is ended. Maybe we'll just forget our Jewish identity completely. We'll just forget about worshiping Yahweh, and we'll just try to blend into our new home in Babylon. We'll just blend into our neighbors, effectively just become Babylonians. And, you know, and in a generation or two, you know, our ancestors will forget where we came from. We'll just be Babylonians. At the same time, there was a third group. There was a bunch of prophets that rose up. And these prophets declared that thus saith the Lord, God's favor was about to rise up at any minute and help the Jewish people throw off the shackles and overthrow their captors and they would be victorious. It would just be like a couple of weeks and they would be free in their own land again, right? Pack up, pack up the bags, load up the suburban, we're going home, baby. Wrong. God sent this man named Jeremiah to condemn these guys, these prophets, as false prophets. 
and to warn the children of Israel against listening to them. This is really a bizarre case. It was an unusual case of the positive victorious message they were hearing was actually the false one. It was the demonic message. The doom and gloom message was actually kind of the right one. They called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. These prophets accused, these prophets who were given all these prophecies, they accused Jeremiah of being defeatist, that he was lacking faith, that, and, and just accused him of generally just being a really big bummer. Could he just please shut up? Because uh, nobody really wanted to hear these words. They even threw him in prison a couple of times, several, several times, because his words were considered so unpatriotic. But Jeremiah stayed true to what God told him to tell the children of Israel. And it was a timely word. It was a timely word for those who had either lost hope or who thought the only recourse was to rebel and, and fight their way back into power. So first, Jeremiah, he says, he says this to the, uh, these sort of triumphal-sounding prophecies. He said, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Ooh, that is a really weird phrase. Did you catch that? Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. What he's saying to them is, it is your wishful thinking that is feeding these false prophets. Mm. Mm -mm. As long as there is a market for fantasies, I'm telling you, there will be imposters willing to supply them. 2 Timothy 4.3 tells us that for the, the time is coming. Paul, Paul told Timothy, he said, there's a time coming when people will will not put up with sound teaching. That's the gospel. But having their ears tickled, one, one translation says, itching ears. What a, what a great picture that is. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. Oh my goodness. He who has ears to hear, please. Okay, so ba okay, back to our thing. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So God had already promised. See, here's what happened. God had already declared to Israel that they would be in captivity for 70 years. He'd already said this. So this probably wasn't, wasn't meant to be a, a literal 70 years, like, oh, here, you know, watch for April of 2072. It wasn't that. It was it, 70 years stood for a long time. It's not happening right now. Basically, 70 years stood for a lifetime, right? Three or four generations. It was, you're going to be here for a lifetime. And then what does he say next? He says, for I know, this is a, a scripture a lot of us, love. I love it too. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful verse, but it's coming, it, this message of hope is actually part of God telling them to tap the brakes on all this, we're going home tomorrow talk, right? He's giving them a message of hope, but it's also a message of reality, what's happening here. Secondly, Jeremiah gives uh, the Jews living in exile, and he then gives them instruction on how to begin living in Babylon. Okay, so we're, we're in Babylon, we're stuck here, what do we do? How to be Jews living in a foreign land while staying true to their identity. And this is so instructive for us. Look what he, look what he says in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, 
the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Isn't this interesting? What is God saying to these exiles? He's telling them, go ahead and live your lives. Put down roots, have families. We might say it this way if we were going to put it on a bumper sticker, bloom where you're planted, right? But this next part is what's really instructive for the church today. In a time when uh, folks were saying, we have to bunker down and escape from society, or other people are saying, we got to rise up and, and conquer the godless pagans all around us, you know, burn it down. He says, and seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. One translation says, seek the welfare of the city you're in. Seek the welfare of the city you're in. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Isn't this interesting? He said, you're in, you're in Babylon. Yeah, I know. You, you, they, they were the bad guys. But now, what are you going to do? Seek the welfare of the city. Don't treat them like an enemy. Treat them like a neighbor. Whew. This is huge for us. So God calls his people here to, to walk a fine line. It's not to assimilate and become Babylonians and forget who they really are or where their homeland is, but it's also, he's calling them to be a blessing to the people among whom they live, to be a blessing, to live not just as aliens and exiles, but also as ambassadors of blessing, ambassadors of blessing, to witness to the, that witnesses to the character of God. Uh, the reality is Jeremiah 29 is a wake-up call here for God's people to to don't just sit there and spin your wheels and wait. It's a wake-up call for God's people to face the facts that this is not the promised land, but it's also a message of hope that God hasn't forgotten us and we actually do have a noble calling. 600 years later, it's really interesting. The apostle Peter, look at the language that he is going to use here to, to talk to the Christians. He describes the Christians in 1 Peter 1, as exiles. The New American Standard Version calls them aliens. It's a great translation to that. Aliens. Aliens and exiles, far removed from their ultimate homeland. Yet, he also, they too, are assured that they will reach their promised destination. So how should Christians spend their days on earth. Peter goes on to say in, in um, chapter 2, he says that as spiritual exiles and resident aliens, there's that language again, we should abstain from sin. So that's good. So don't just assimilate and just, you know, act like the world. But at the same time, we are called to withdraw from society. What are we called to do? We're called to seek the welfare of our community, to live out, he says, live out such good deeds that the world around us glorifies God. So they see these good deeds, right? I, I like to say it this way, the world should live in such a way that the world was glad we were here. We should, the, the church should live in such a way that the world was glad we were here. That's, what, that's, how, uh, that's how I want to live. They might, they might look at us and go, man, those Christians are weird. They're peculiar. They worship weird. They're like speaking in tongues and dancing around and doing stuff. And I don't know, they're, they're believing Jesus like this, that person rose from the dead. I don't know about that, but man, they are loving people. They are 
honest people. Boy, they're great people to do business with. They're so trustworthy, right? And if there's a calamity in our community, they're the first ones in there. They're always trying to help. Man, those Christians, we sure are glad they were here. So let's drill down a little deeper. We've seen what Paul and Peter and the Old Testament has to say. I want to see what Jesus has to say, because he has something, a really interesting, unique way uh, about to identify. Our identity is exiles and aliens and ambassadors and missionaries. In the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, you, and that's a plural you, right? So that's the y'all. If, if the King James had y'all, that's what he would have said. Y'all are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. I have to admit this was kind of a confusing uh, for me growing up because if you're like me, uh, I've never sat down at dinner and sprinkled salt on my french fries and then thought, well, this isn't salty at all. Just throw it out. This salt is bad. Um, because our salt, it turns out, is like really high quality stuff. But historically speaking, that was unusual. Uh, in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, there was some salt that was not salty enough to put on your french fries. And uh, in fact, salt was pretty expensive. It was very valuable. And so good salt wasn't always what you got. Also in Jesus' day, salt did a lot more than just kick up the flavor. It was a preservative for meat. And so it was essential for life. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't any refrigeration, of course. And so one of the properties of salt is that it attacks and it neutralizes the bacteria in meat that causes decomposition and decay. And so a good question for us when we're reading the scripture is, well, how might salt lose its saltiness if you're in Jesus' day? How does good salt become salt that's not even useful well, there's one thing, one thing that makes salt less salty, and that is more and more things that aren't salt getting mixed in. The more other minerals you have in that sodium chloride, uh, the more salt loses its flavor, its impact. So when Jesus says if salt has lost its saltiness, what he means is if you start adding a whole bunch of other stuff in there, if your salt becomes corrupted enough, it, it can't do what it was created to do. Now, what does this have to do with us being uh, our, our mission as ambassadors and, and missionaries? Because when you accept the challenge to go into the world and make disciples, instead of retreating from the world and building a bunker, when you accept that challenge, you have to be smart. Jesus once said in Matthew 10, 16, he says, I'm sending you guys out into a dangerous world, so you need to be as harmless as doves, right? But wise as serpents. It's dangerous out there, right? You have to be smart. Now, one of the reasons why I, I do feel uh, uniquely qualified to talk about this is because I spent several years, before I was uh, lead pastor here, I spent uh, several years being leader of our young adult college uh, ministry. We had, called The Bridge. And, uh, and that was so much fun. I loved those, those guys and, and girls. Uh, and so when I was, in my years as college pastor, uh, I would oftentimes poll the kids to see, uh, you know, hey guys, what is it that you want me to preach about? Uh, because, you know, I wanted to address sermons that, that you know, was what, whatever they were going through. Um, and after a couple years, I no longer asked the question because I no longer, longer needed to take a survey because I knew what they wanted me to talk about. It was one of two things. One, they wanted me to talk about the end times. Because all that weird stuff in Revelation is really fun to talk about. Secondly, they want to talk about sex. Because sex. 
And if I could talk about, will there be sex in the end times? That was a bonus. <laughs> that was like college ministry gold right there. Uh, if you can mix those two things together. Inevitably, during doing a series about this, though, uh, I would have one of our students come up and say, Scott, I need your advice. I'd say, what's going on? And she'd say, I'm in love with Johnny. I'd say, that's great. That sounds amazing. Uh, She'd say, okay, well, here's the, the other problem. Johnny's not a Christian. And I would say, hmm. And she would say, but if I date Johnny and I love Johnny, I will make him a Christian. And I will be a missionary through my love for Johnny. I will convert Johnny to Christianity through our relationship. Does anyone want to guess how often that worked out well? And so what I would often uh, warn these students, I would warn them against missionary dating, we called it. Um, And it's because I wanted them to be smart. We got to be smart. More often than not, entering into, they were entering into dangerous territory. Dating is dangerous territory already, right? Uh, And so there's all kinds of ways for dating relationships to become unsalty. There just is. So you have to be smart about the places that you feel called to be an ambassador, to be an, a missionary. Because, let's face it, not every corner of the, of the world is equally as dark. You got to be smart. Just imagine for a second that I went and got interviewed uh, to be am, an ambassador for the United States. And I finished up all my training, and so uh, I, I finished my training, and so I, I went down to Marge who, to get my assignment and uh, down the hall to get my placement, and she shows me all the open positions. Now, my name is Scott, so let's just say we, we thumb through the S's to see where I might go get stationed. And the first one I come across is Sweden. To be an ambassador to Sweden. That sounds awesome. I love Ikea, right? <laughs> Meatballs, I could do it every day, that's great. Snow skiing, I heard it's very clean. You know, it's great, it's a Germanic language, English, Germanic, I could do that. No, no problem at all. Sounds great. Um, And then I scroll down the list and I see Syria. Now, would that be harder or easier than being an ambassador to Sweden? It'd be hard to be an ambassador to Syria right now, right? It'd be tough. We, as a church, uh, you guys, have people who are working as ambassadors and missionaries of God's kingdom all over this planet. And some of those places are hard. Some of them are hard. Not all of them are the same. Some of them are tough. Being a missionary is a tremendous challenge, and when you wrap your heart into the equation, uh, you know, with missionary dating, I would tell these kids, and you include romance into the equation, well, then you are asking for trouble. And some of you have lived this out. Um, You have to be smart to be a, a salty missionary, resident, alien, exile, ambassador in the kingdom of God, right? You have to be smart not to let your salt lose its saltiness. What else does Jesus say? Just real quick here, because I know it's, it's getting late. Matthew 5 and 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Good works here is synonymous with justice and mercy. It means to live generously and involve yourself into the lives of people who have needs. And he says, when people see that, they will give glory to your Father in heaven. 
real quick, what I want to point out here is look at the phrase he uses, the city on a hill. Look how light is packaged here in Jesus' words. City on a hill. It's not in the form of like bonfires and torches, or like a mob of people coming to burn it all down. It's light in the form of a city. Is there anything about light from a city that is threatening to its neighbors? No. It's not a threat. It's a beacon. It's a beacon in the darkness for those who are doing what? Traveling, people who are lost, people who are seeking and searching for rest and shelter and hope. These are the images we're given. See, a church that behaves like a city is much different than a church that behaves like a mob. It's why we have a billboard out there that literally it lets people know that we know, yeah, we know this world is angry and confused. What they're going to get when they come to generations is more light and less heat. More light, less heat. We want to be a city. The picture we're given over and over in the New Testament is of a church that exists as such an oasis of grace and peace that outsiders will seek her out. The Bible says the world will know us by our love. They'll know us by our love. And what will happen? The idea is what will happen is they'll ask you what it's all about, right? They'll seek what it is that makes you so different. They'll knock on the door. And Jesus says when folks ask, seek, knock, they will find him. So Jesus says when they see our good works, our generosity, our grace in motion, and when they see that, the result won't be, gosh, what a bunch of hypocritical, hateful racists that church is. No, no, they're gonna, their only logical response would be to be compelled towards the beauty of Jesus. Now, I want to finish today by asking you a question. Is there any part of the world that we live in that is so dark that it's outside of God's love? Is there any part of the world that's so dark that God just doesn't have any hope for it? Can you imagine Jesus going, oh, there's no hope for those people? I understand we would love to live in the promised land. That would be awesome. We would love to live in the promised land rather than be longing for home. But we're here for a purpose. We're planted in this place and this time for a purpose. We're here not to, to force on our world a false veneer of Christendom that doesn't do anybody any good. We are here to, to help compel men and women out of their kingdoms and to join God's kingdom. That is what we want to do by proclaiming his love and his grace. We want to share that good news message that your, your sins are no longer counted against you. You can come home to the Father because his kingdom has wide open borders and everyone is welcome. I want to read you, I'll finish by reading you a letter. This letter dates from the second century. So just like 150 years or so after Jesus. And the author is unknown. We know who it was written to, but we don't know who wrote it. But it just describes the church beautifully. The author says, Christians find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens, but put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home, and every home a foreign land. They spend their days on earth, but hold citizenship in heaven. 
generations, we are, we, we're, yeah, we're the church in exile, but let's live salty lives. Let's be salty people. Let's leave our neighbors feeling glad we were here not for the sake of ourselves, uh, but working in our neighborhoods and in our families and in our businesses and in our city, working for human flourishing, working for justice, working for peace. God, may your kingdom come on earth as your will is done in heaven where you live, right? But let, let's pray that to pass, but let's also work to bring it to pass. Amen? Will you bow your heads as I pray for us today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus, unite us together as a city on a hill. Help generations to be salty Christians. Help us to be a blessing to our community without being corrupted by all the toxic atmosphere. May we be like soldiers who who don't get overly entangled in civilian affairs, but such a reflection of your love and your grace that it is irresistibly compelling to the world around us. May our neighbors crave to know more of you, Jesus, when they see our good deeds and our love and our unity. May we be a positive force, a countercultural presence for the good of the people in our great city. And Lord, until that day that our time of exile comes to an end, we continue to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your blessed name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Stand to your feet. Will you, as our prayer partners are coming forward right now, if there's anything that we can pray for you about, thank you so much for being patient with us this morning. With me, I was a little long-winded, but I just thank you so much. Uh, I think that uh, God's got something really good for this church. He's got something good for us. Uh, and he, he wants, he's turning us into the people that is going to make a huge impact in our community. If there's anything we can pray for you about, come forward. If you want to say yes to Jesus today for the first time, make him your king and just start following down that road. Come and let these guys know they would love to pray with you and, ta- and help you take that next right step. Amen. My friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious and merciful to you in this world that we live in. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.